Okay, that sounds like I'm on. <laughs> I love that song. Uh, good morning. I'm so glad to be here. You know, last time I preached a sermon for this pulpit, I spoke to you about doubt. And today, I'm going to be speaking about despair. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be negative. My, my wife will actually tell you I'm an eternal optimist. And I actually didn't choose the passage we're looking at today. But I'm excited to talk to you about, about it. Because even though Psalm 42 shows us a person in deep despair, despair isn't the point of the psalm. Hope is. And Psalm 42 is, is given to us as a roadmap to help us maintain hope when we feel despair. And you don't have to live very long to realize how valuable a lesson that could be. Because life can be terribly difficult. And at times we, we really can't help feeling despair when the darkness closes in on us. But what we can do by God's strength is to hold on to hope until the morning comes. Now, there's no question that we find the psalmist in a dark place in Psalm 42. Op open your Bibles with me and let's look at the psalm. In verse 1, the psalmist says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. And we just sang that line in, in this beautiful praise chorus, and I love the praise chorus, but one of the things I think it fails to capture is what a dark place he's in. It's speaking sort of a, a rapturous desire for God. And that, that isn't where the psalmist is when he writes Psalm 42. See, verse two continues, and he says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And when Psalm 42 compares our desire for God to the panting of deer for water, it's speaking of a painful and unmet desire of severe, unquenched thirst. God's presence, it seems to have vanished, as many of Israel's seasonal streams do for much of the year. And the psalmist, he doesn't know when his thirst will be quenched. <clears throat> he goes on in verse 2 and he says, when shall I come and appear before God? Have you been in places where you wished God would draw near? Where you needed him to answer your desperate prayers and you didn't know how long it would take? If so, Psalm 42 is written for you. Verse 3 gets darker. My tears have been my food day and night, the psalmist says. He is so distressed that he can't eat, and day and night he weeps. And, and nowadays, if you were to tell your doctor that you were so sad that you couldn't eat and that you often stayed awake crying, you would probably be diagnosed with depression. And for those who have struggled with depression, I, I want to make a special point of saying here, the scriptures never imply that walking through depression indicates any kind of failure in your spiritual life. Okay. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says, some of God's special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The Apostle Paul seems to have had a struggle with depression, as did Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards and Adoniram Judson. And depression, it, it definitely brings temptations with it, and we have to handle them well, 
But all of life's hardships bring temptations. And if we do handle them well, we can bring great glory to God. As we continue near the end of verses three and four, we start learning why the psalmist is depressed. He used to be able to go to God and worship him in the temple together with his loved ones. And now, instead of being encouraged by his friends, he's being taunted by his enemies. And they're saying to him, where is your God? They're, they're telling him that God has forgotten him. And we don't really know why. Maybe they don't believe in God at all, and they're mocking his faith. Maybe, like Job's friends, they do believe in God, and they think that God has judged him, and that the hardships he's going through are his own fault. We, we don't really know. But we do know he describes his soul as being cast down in verse 5, and again in verse 11. And in verse 9, he says that he's being oppressed by his enemies. And actually, the language that he uses in verses 5 and 11 to say that his soul is cast down seems to be quoted by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's contemplating the horror of his own death. See that the Greek words that Jesus uses for soul and for sorrowful are the exact same words used in Psalm 42.5 in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Bible that was, or of the Old Testament that was available in Jesus' day. And we never find these two words used together anywhere else in scripture. And so Jesus, he probably is intending to quote Psalm 42, but even if he's not, the experience of suffering he's having is similar enough to the Psalm that he uses the exact same language to describe it. In verse six, he goes on and he said that, says that he has been in the wilderness of the Jordan and of Hermon and near Mount Mizar. And today we, we actually don't know where Mount Mizar is, but we do know that the wilderness of the Jordan is one of the places that King David fled in exile and one of the places that Israelites waited before entering the promised land. And so the psalmist is describing himself as being trapped in faraway places, far from the house of God in Jerusalem, he feels like he has been exiled, cut off from the presence of God by his enemies. And in verse seven, he gives us this vivid picture of someone who's drowning in sorrows. Hardships have rolled over him again and again. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me, he says, and he is flailing in the depths. Have you passed through seasons where hardship after hardship was overtaking you? Have you felt you were flailing at sea? If so, Psalm 42 is written for you. And so it, it gives us this picture of someone who's, who's depressed, who's despairing, and the question is, why? Why would God record the musings and prayers of a despairing person in Scripture? Doesn't he want us to be positive, faithful people? And I, I think what Psalm 42 is intended to do is to equip us to bear these moments of despair when they come. See, we're, we're far more frail than we imagine. And you, you may feel very strong today, but that strength depends on a delicate web of family relationships and friendships and economic circumstances and health. 
and a few unexpected tragedies can send even the strongest of us flailing. And those tragedies will happen in our lives. And at the moments when they happen, our feelings of despair and encouragement are very real. We, we can't just wish them away. We need a way to deal with them. And so you have this on your outlines. We need to know that even though our emotions are real, that doesn't mean that what we feel is true. Our feelings of despair are not just going to vanish. They're too solid and too real for that. And yet we have to be wary. Just because we feel despair doesn't actually mean that all hope is gone. Our, our feelings are incredibly fickle. One day, we may wake up feeling God is very close to us, and the next day we may wake up feeling like he's never existed. But wise people know that this happens in all our relationships. We feel close one day and distant the next, and relating to people or gauging the health of a relationship based on how we feel, it leaves us hopelessly uncommitted right, and inconsistent. And so Psalm 42, it's letting us listen as the psalmist fights to see past what he feels to take hold of what he believes is true. It, it's written, and you have this on your outlines, to provide us with a script to follow in difficult times. And as Americans today, we don't like scripts. We, we actually tend to move away from the Psalms in our prayer lives because they're scripted. Praying from a script can seem very insincere to us, and we feel a lot more genuine and more free expressing ourselves in our own original words. But at life's most crucial moments, we absolutely need a script to inform our actions with wisdom beyond our own. And that is why scripture is so important. Going through these moments without a script, it's, it's dangerous. In the same way going to battle without training is dangerous. It leaves us improvising, anchorless in the high seas, led by whatever thoughts spring to mind as we grow increasingly frantic. So I want to look at the script that Psalm 42 gives us to help us handle these feelings of despair, and I'm going to suggest that it has three parts. And the first, and you have this on your outline, is that in difficult times, we should complain to God. The psalmist complains in verse 9. He says, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And complaint is enshrined for us in the Psalms and in the book of Job and in Christ's own gasps on the cross as a part of how faithful people handle difficulty. And this is hard for us because complaining to God feels irreverent to us. But that's exactly why the script that the psalm gives us is so important. It teaches us that the language we would have thought was irreverent is actually an honest and essential and God-honoring way to address our difficulties to the Lord. Okay, now, I want you to follow me carefully here. There's a difference 
and this is on your outlines, between complaining to God and grumbling against God. The children of Israel grumble against God in the desert when they say, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hungry with hunger. And in this passage, the Israelites are not looking for answers. They're not asking questions at all. They are quick to pass judgment on God despite his consistent, miraculous provision. Anytime things don't go exactly the way they want, exactly when they want it to. And this is a foolish and offensive way to relate to anyone, and especially to God. And he is displeased. People who treat God like this, who demand that he fulfill all of their whims exactly when they ask him to, are forgetting how great he is. They're acting as if he existed for our purposes, as if he were accountable to us rather than us to him. They are treating God like an idol. But there is a second way that we can treat God like an idol, and it's equally dangerous. Instead of forgetting God's greatness and assuming that he exists to do exactly what we want when we want it, we can forget God's closeness. We can forget that he cares about what happens to us, that he promises to deliver us from trouble, that when we call on him, he reaches into our lives in answer to prayer and into the real and everyday lives that we conduct relationships in and work in and do conflict in and pay taxes in. And so we can end up imagining that God like an idol, is mute and motionless and inaccessible at the moments when we most need him. And Psalm 42, it avoids both of these extremes. It doesn't forget God's greatness by hanging him out to dry for not doing exactly what the psalmist wants right away. But it also doesn't forget his closeness by deciding that if he hasn't acted and answered prayer yet, he's probably not going to. Complaining to God as the psalmist does. He's not complaining to God because he thinks God doesn't care about him. He's complaining because he believes God does care enough to hear his prayers and to help. Look at his complaint with me in verse 9. He says, why have you forgotten me? And now in Old Testament language, for God to remember someone is to decide to take action on their behalf. And so in Exodus 5, just before God sets the Israelites free from slavery, this is what he says. He says, I have heard the groaning of my people Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God has remembered Israel. He's about to act. And in Psalm 42, the psalmist, he wants to be remembered. He he wants God to act. And See, often when we pray from these places of trouble, we'll ask God for help and we'll, we'll end by saying, but Lord, your will be done. And I think this is intended respectfully, but I think often what we're really trying to do is to provide God with an out. We don't really think he's about to do anything. 
or that our prayer actually affects what's going to happen. And it's interesting to notice there's only one prayer in scripture that ends with your will be done. And that is the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. But I think Jesus knows perfectly well what's, go what's going to happen, right? He has been telling his disciples for months and months that he has to die. And his prayer, it's more an act of renunciation than a request to his father. And so it's, it's unfortunate that we tend to pray this way when we have no reason to believe that God doesn't want to answer our prayers. Because the danger is that in doing so, and this will sound kind of funny, but we, we may actually be over-spiritualizing prayer. We may be starting to imagine that prayer is more about helping us find a felt inner peace than it is about finding the real help that we need to sustain us in sufferings. And the problem when we fall into this way of thinking, and this is on your outlines, is that the scriptures actually take human suffering very seriously. They, they don't deny the terrible difficulty of the circumstances that we pass through. They don't tell us to rise above our circumstances, to, to transcend our circumstances, to man up and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and be bigger than our circumstances. And Far too often, that's what I think we imagine that we're supposed to do. Sometimes we'll even tell each other that real godly joy is supposed to be independent of circumstances. But the scriptures tell us something very different. They tell us that in fact, our circumstances are too much for us to master. They tell us that suffering can crush us. Christ himself doesn't rise above his difficult circumstances. He's not whistling in the dark on the way to Calvary. He groans in his sufferings and he cries out and he dies from his sufferings. And so the, the scriptures, they fully acknowledge the darkness of human suffering. But they also tell us, have hope because God is in the midst of your sufferings. God is at work in your circumstances. And they're telling us, yes, the world is all wrong now, and things aren't at all as they should be, but that is only a small part of the truth. The greater part of the truth is that God is a living God, and he still intervenes in history, and he still knows every hair on your head, and he keeps all of your tears in his bottle, and he will set everything straight, everything that's gone wrong. And so in the scriptures, and this is on your outlines, we are not asked to rise above our circumstances, but to trust God to redeem our circumstances. We serve a living God, and he will act in real ways to bring real redemption to even the hardest and darkest and most impossible circumstances that we find ourselves in. He did it with the cross. And so if you are in a place of despair this morning, I, I want you to remember God is the Lord of your circumstances. And I don't know when he will reach into your circumstances. And I don't know how. But I know that if you complain to him, if you call out to him, that he will. I know that ultimately he will redeem all of our difficulties so fully that 
sorrow won't just give way to joy. It will be swallowed up by it altogether. And frankly, unless we have this hope that God is going to make our circumstances okay, we're never going to be able to follow Jesus when the stakes are high. Hebrews 11.19 tells us that Abraham was able to offer up Isaac. Why? Because he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham knew that if he obeyed God, God would be with him. And we can't obey God very well unless we believe that he's going to be good to us in our actual circumstances and in our actual lives. And Dallas Willard puts it like this. He says, we want to do what's right, but we're prepared to sin if the situation requires it. What he's saying is, we we don't lie because we want to. For, For the most part, we lie because we think we couldn't bear what might happen if we told the truth, and we don't think God's gonna make it okay. We don't scream at our kids or spouses because we love inflicting anger on them. For the most part, we lose our temper because we don't think life will turn out okay unless we use our anger to control people around us. So, and this is on your outlines, we can't obey God very well unless we believe that he's going to be good to us in our own particular circumstances and in our own particular lives. And of course, when we feel despair, we can easily forget this, right? Despair can be overwhelming. But again, even though the emotion is real, that doesn't make it true. And you may not be able to feel hope that doesn't mean there isn't any hope. When we complain to God, and this is on your outlines, we call out with the psalmist in verse seven, from the depths of our misery to the depths of God's love. And you may not be able to feel God's love, neither does the psalmist, but however deep you may be flailing in your own misery or even in your own sin, You can call out to him, you can complain to him, and you will find that his love is deeper still. The the psalmist here, his misery is so deep that he says his tears have been his food day and night. And yes, that's definitely all he can feel. But still, in verse 8, we find this deeper reality that he can't feel, that God's love is also with him by day, and God's song is also with him by night. And so he asks for God's help. And the script that Psalm 42 gives us for our despair is that we need to complain to God and to call out to him for help. Now, there's a a second thing that Psalm 42 teaches us to do. It's, It's meant to give us a script not only to help us cry out to God and complain to him, but also to stir up hope within us when we feel despair. And you'll see this in verse 5 and again in verse 11. The psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. So, and this is on your outlines, Psalm 42 shows us that in difficult times, we need to speak the truth to ourselves, like the psalmist did. He addresses his own soul and he asks it, why are you so cast down? Why are you so depressed? 
And our, our problem is that in our most difficult season, our soul often starts by speaking to us and telling us, God's not going to get you out of this. And without a script, we don't really know how to respond. We wake up and we hear our, our soul just muttering to us, today's going to be another terrible day. And all those people who betrayed and humiliated you before, they're going to do the same thing again. And you should have known it would turn out this way. And this is probably your fault. And it keeps on going, right? That is how our stream of consciousness works. And this is what happens to the psalmist. His soul is depressing him. It's telling him how terrible everything is. It's panicked and it's gone off script and it's telling him lies. And so in Psalm 42, in verses 5 and 11, we see the psalmist fighting back. He's talking back to his own soul and he's pushing it back on script. And in his classic book, Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones describes the psalmist's response this way. He says, the main art in spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business do you have to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Do you see what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying? We, we don't have the wisdom or strength on our own to handle these hard times. We need a script that has wisdom and righteousness beyond our own. Righteousness that comes from outside ourselves. Right, what the reformers called alien righteousness. To preach to ourselves and to set us straight. And the scriptures give us a script that can stop us from spiraling down from sorrow into despair and disbelief, and finally sin. Because we're, we're naturally forgetful. And that's why, you have this on your outlines, God commands people again and again in scripture to remember his goodness to them. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9, he says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is how often God wants us to remind ourselves of his goodness in order to stir up our souls. And sadly, the people were not diligent to remember. Judges 3.7 tells us, and the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And we need to learn from their mistakes. At our lowest moments, we need to remind ourselves of God's goodness and to speak the truth to our own souls. Now, here's the problem. We're trying simultaneously to complain to God in the midst of despair and also to hope. And to hope is to face the future with faith. 
believing in good things that are still to come. But the future is still ahead of us. And God has hidden it from us. We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. So hope in God is an open-ended thing. And when, when the psalmist tells his soul hope in God, a part of what he's telling his soul to do is to be ready to endure, to be ready to wait. And so, and you have this on your outlines, in difficult times, we need to wait for God's redemption. The one thing that stands between our prayers and their answers is time. The one thing that stands between our difficulties and their redemption is time. And in Luke 18, Jesus tells a story to his disciples about a widow, right, who goes to an unjust judge and she keeps going and keeps complaining. And what he says, he says, God will speedily answer the prayers of his elect. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And so this waiting, this time, it is where our faith is both refined and tested. Those of us who have faith will be able to hold on. We won't be able to stop, ultimately. But if we're honest, waiting is pretty unsettling, especially when we're in real despair. And we quickly start to wonder if something has gone wrong. Maybe God really has forgotten us. Or maybe he's just had enough of us. But the bottom line is that we're wondering if our lives are going to turn out right the way that the Bible stories did. But I think it's really important to us to remember that when we read the Bible, it's very easy to miss how long people had to wait for God to answer them. Right, we read God's promise to Abraham and a couple of pages later, Isaac is born. But that took 18 years. We read about David being anointed as king, or being anointed, and a few chapters later he's king, but he ran from Saul in the desert for years. And we see Moses, right, waiting 40 years in Midian until God is ready to send him. And we see the people of Israel waiting 400 years for their Messiah. And so in the scriptures, and you have this on your outline, long waiting is the pattern and not the exception. And the danger is that if we forget this, we'll lose hope too early and we'll start looking for other answers. Abraham got tired of waiting and he turned to Hagar. David's men got tired of waiting and they told him to kill Saul in the cave. See, Christianity is a religion of faith and God's people in the New Testament and the Old are those who trust him to come through for them. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it's impossible to please God for everyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And so we need to trust him even when we don't know what he's going to do or when he's going to do it. And at the core of New Testament faith, and you have this on your outlines, is the belief that Jesus not only died 
but also rose from the dead, and that after we suffer and die, no matter how dark it gets along the way, Jesus is going to raise us from the dead too. And looking forward to that final deliverance was what gave Jesus the strength to endure. Yes, he endured great suffering. And yes, he, he quoted from this very psalm to describe his suffering. But Hebrews tells us he had hope to endure, he had hope in the joy set before him that allowed him to endure the cross. Now, Jesus told us very clearly that following him means bearing a cross with him. He, he didn't die for us so that we wouldn't have to suffer and die. He died for us so that we could share his sufferings with him and enter with him into glory. And knowing that gives us the strength to endure. As Christians, God wants us to be an eternally minded people and to remember that this life is only a practice run and the best and the most wonderful things all lie ahead. And every day that we age, every day that our body is decaying, is a day closer to inheriting a joy and a glory that our wildest imaginations cannot begin to understand. Certainly, we, we will see a lot of prayers answered on this side of eternity, but they will all be answered on the other side. And if we really believe in eternity, the fact that God's final and fullest answers are in the resurrection and not in this life, it will make them more real rather than less. Because they will last forever, unlike the things we receive in this life that fade away. And a hundred million years from now, when we are shining like the sun, living in the presence of God himself and reflecting his beauty and his joy and his glory, the darkness that we suffered on the way, it's going to seem well worthwhile. But we have a chance here in this life to do something extraordinary. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul seems to be suffering intense depression. And he talks in chapter 4 about being afflicted and persecuted and perplexed and struck down. And but what he says, he says, even in my afflictions, he is not, uh, even in all of these difficulties, he is not despairing. He is not destroyed. Right? He is, there is a hope that is living in him. And what he says in chapter 4, verse 10, is that as he carries the death of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus in his body, the life of Jesus is also revealed in his body. And it is as we suffer that the life of Jesus, his resurrection power, is revealed both to us and to people around us. And so if you are suffering today, or if you're about to suffer in the near future, I want to speak to you especially. I want to say, I wish I could take your suffering away but I, I can't do that. I can't even lessen it. But what I can do is to encourage you in the old-fashioned sense of the word, to breathe courage into you from scripture and to say, suffer with hope. God is in the midst of the circumstances you find yourself in. 
He is working in them, in the messiness of your life. However you got there, whether it was through things that happened to you, even if it was through some sinful and foolish decisions you made, God is in that. And Paul tells us that the sufferings of this present time are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. And all who believe in Jesus believe in this. He knows your suffering, so cry to him, complain to him, and stir your soul to hope in him, and then just wait. Just hang on. Hope in the day when he'll, reve- when he'll redeem all of your suffering, even the darkest and deepest parts, because he will do that, and he'll do it completely. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.